Well, uh, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and let's make our way back to Psalm 119. Of course, you know that's where we've been for the past few Wednesday evenings. Um, This is our fourth, really, installment of that, a series that we've titled The Glory of God's Word, The Glory of God's Word. And so we get to open God's Word and declare and study the glory of God's Word tonight, but specifically... When we come to this fourth stanza, verses 25 through 32, I want to ask you this particular question in relationship to God's Word. How quickly do you run to God's Word when you're suffering? That's the question before us. Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32, a stanza that I've entitled, uh, The Word in the Way of Suffering. The Word in the Way of Suffering. And if you're there already, follow along with me as I read it in its entirety, and then we'll walk through it together. Beginning in verse 25, the psalmist writes this, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways, and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Why have I titled this stanza, The Word in the Way of Suffering, well, because as we read through it, you might have noticed that suffering is clearly in the context here, in the experience of the psalmist, right? We heard um, rumors of it last time as Danny waded into the Gimel stanza where we began, as he said, to hear uh, a, a bit of a change in the music to a minor key. But at this point, it's in our face, especially, you notice verse 25, you notice verse 28, the psalmist here is suffering. Are you suffering tonight? Have you suffered? I mean, if you haven't, you haven't lived long, you will in this fallen world It is common to our existence, and so we must know how to respond. But why the the way of suffering? Why why call it the the word in the, the way of suffering? Because notice, not only do all eight verses here begin with the Hebrew letter D for Dalet, right? That's the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet in this acrostic poem. Not only does... Every single verse here begin with letter D, so to speak. You might be interested to know that also five out of eight 
of these verses in this stanza actually begin not just with the same letter, but with the same word. And it's the word Derek. Anybody named Derek in here? That's <laughs> uh, what, what does this word mean in Hebrew? It is, it means way. It means path. It means road. And so this is the way of suffering. Five verses begin with this word. You can't see it in the English, but I'll point them out to you. Maybe if you have a highlighter or something, if you like to mark up your Bible, uh, I, I, would, I would maybe do this and, and draw a little arrow to the front of the verse. Notice verse 26 actually begins with, in the original text, it reads, my ways I have told you, I have told. Verse, verse 27 also opens with, the way of your precepts make me understand. Verse 29 begins, the false way remove from me. Verse 30 also begins with this word, the faithful way I have chosen. And then verse 32, the fifth, the way of your commandments, is really how that verse begins, I shall run. And so the English kind of smooths that out, but it's helpful to see that, right? So then you say, what about the other three verses? Well, the other three verses in this stanza, yes, they begin with the letter D, but they don't follow this particular pattern. They don't begin with the word Derek. Verses 25, 28, and 31, notice, Maybe, maybe underline or highlight those, those entire verses because they're very important. They become rather significant here because unlike the other verses, instead of opening with the word way, they begin with D-verbs and describe the psalmist's situation of suffering. Let me point those out to you as well. Notice how in verses 25, 28, and 31, the psalmist first describes the difficulty of the situation with a personal comment in the first line of those verses, and then the second line of those verses immediately follows with a prayer request for God's help. Notice first verse 25. The psalmist's situation is one of Let's choose a D word, distress. My soul cleaves to the dust. And then followed by, notice his request for God to revive me according to your word. There's a situation and a request. Likewise, notice verse 28. The psalmist's situation is one of another D word, perhaps we could describe this as depression, not just distress, but depression and despair. Notice the situation. My soul weeps because of grief, followed by his request for God to strengthen me according to your word. And then lastly, notice verse 31. The psalmist's situation is one of desperation desperation. I cling to your testimonies. But then it's followed, same pattern, by his request for God to, O oh Lord, do, do not 
put me to shame. So in light of those clear divisions, look, here's, here's, your, here's your actual outline for tonight. So I faked you out. That's not your outline. Here's your actual outline. It does follow those three particular divisions, though. In the face of distress, depression, and desperation, the psalm tells us of three graces of God's word in the way of suffering. You might even put it this way. These are three very good reasons why you should run to God's word when you suffer. And I'll give them to you up front. Notice first, verses 25 through 27. The first reason is this. The word of God gives us understanding to walk wisely in our suffering. The word of God gives us understanding to walk wisely in our suffering. Verses 25 through 27. The second we'll see in verses 28 through 30. Again, following that pattern. Uh, the word of God then gives us strength, or you could say stability, strength, to walk faithfully in our suffering. The word of God gives us strength to walk faithfully in our suffering, verses 28 through 30. And then lastly, we'll see uh, the word of God, verses, verses 31 and 32, gives us confidence or hope, we could say, to walk joyfully in our suffering. Confidence or hope to walk joyfully in our suffering, verses 31 and 32. In other words, just think, think, just step back for a moment then this, and think about this. Krishna, the next time you suffer, I hope that tonight sort of it, it motivates you or, or plants that seed in your mind that, man, the first thing I need to do before I do anything else is go to God in his word. In our suffering, the word of God can renew your mind. It can renew your resolve. It can renew your strength for greater obedience. So let's consider each of these in order. Notice first, uh, the word of God, the psalmist says, and testifies, really, gives us understanding to walk wisely in our suffering, verses 25 through 27. Let's read it again. My soul cleaves to the dust, he writes. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways, and you've answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your Wonders. You see, here in, in, in the first section, the psalmist describes his situation as one of great distress. But, but what's, what's most convicting, we might say, and yet at the same time most helpful here, is that, as one writer puts it, he prays, did you notice, not only for deliverance from his plight, which is natural, but also for spiritual understanding to know what to do. 
Notice first the, the way he describes his situation and experience of suffering here. He says, my soul cleaves to the dust. And the word to cleave here means to stick or to glue or to, you know, adhere to something closely and strongly. In fact, you might recognize this term in Genesis 2.24. The same word is used to speak of what? Husband and wife. That one flesh tight-knit union and joining of man and woman in the institution of marriage. That's how tight this cleaving and clinging to is. And, but here, notice the psalmist is said is, is not joined to another person in a deep and fruitful and abiding companionship. He actually declares this is his companion. It is humiliating defeat. He's stuck to the dust. Or, you know, before, before you, instead of, instead of viewing like those dust bunnies that just want to stick to your clothes, you know, when you pull them out of the dryer and just like you can't, you can't get them off. It's, it's not even that. It's, it's dr- the word is the dust of the ground. It's the picture is that of a man who's been crushed to the earth. Someone who's been trampled down, humiliated into the ground, who's prostrate, face first, flat on his belly, on the dusty floor, unable to pick himself up. You ever felt that way in a, in a trial? You know, there's no lower situation or station in life. In fact, Isaiah 25 verse 12 gives us a good description of this progression and position where God will, speaking of um, a wicked city, he says God will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground. Listen, and here's the next level, and there is no lower level, even to the dust. You can't, you can't, think of, you can't sink any deeper than the dust of the ground. And by the way, some commentators have pointed out that dust is also, if you, if you remember, if you know your Bibles, it's that material that man has been fashioned from to which the Bible says he shall return, right? Genesis 3.19, Psalm 22, verse 29, if you're taking notes, and therefore, it's not far-fetched maybe to conclude even here that the psalmist may even be referring to the fact that he may have found himself in a life-threatening situation uh, on the brink of death, that close to returning to dust. And if not in reality, at least he felt like this in his distress, right? Notice, this was the experience of his soul. Whatever we can say about his physical circumstances, the greater point here is this was the condition of his inner man, right? This is how he, this is what he was experiencing. And it was as if his soul was being crushed into the ground. the psalmist is describing here is the dark night of the soul. Whatever his 
outward circumstances were, it clearly crushed his spirit, crushed his pride. It brought him low on the inside, regardless of what he looked like to others walking around. Isn't that your experience sometimes? You're you're here and you're walking around, but something has so happened in your life that if you were to describe it, it's like I'm standing upright, but my soul is, it's, it's flat on the ground. And Spurgeon adds another thought or idea to this picture. He, he writes there that the psalmist means in part that he was full of sorrow for Mourners in the east cast dust on their heads and sat in ashes, and the psalmist felt as if these signs of woe were glued to him. His very soul was made to cleave to them because of his powerlessness to rise above his grief. He'd been knocked down, spiritual wind knocked out of him, unable to get up. So what are we to do when we find ourselves in that place? What should we do? Where should we turn? Well, notice next, the psalmist, notice what he does, and let's learn from it. He, he first, he turns to God in prayer. Notice, revive me. God, revive me. Breathe life into my soul again according to your word. The Spurgeon says, let us Always resort to prayer in our desponding times, for it is the surest and shortest way out of the depths. Specifically, notice what his prayer here is. He prays for new life and vitality. Um, Now, this could just be a plea for God to sustain his physical life. But I'm inclined to think it's much more than that. Just as his physical circumstances, as we said, aren't the only thing in view here, though they're probably, it's probably related, the, the psalmist is pleading with God here to give him new spiritual life. After all, it was his soul that was cleaving to the dust, therefore it is his soul that God must quicken. It's his inner man that needs to be revitalized and reinvigorated and renewed Notice how this revival of the soul happens in your suffering. It's in this prepositional phrase, according to your word. Beloved, it is the word of God that works spiritual life in us. We know this, don't we? It is according to the promises and the power of God's word that our souls can be lifted from the brink of death to receive the fullness of abundant life that God has promised. Even, listen, even in the midst of your suffering, that can be yours. According to your word. Indeed, God brought us forth by the word of truth, James 1.18. Jesus said it plainly, John 6.63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, no other way. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. 
Or maybe the psalmist knew, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, that man does not live by bread alone, according to bread, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So Thomas Manton writes, in this, his dead condition, faith in God's word kept him alive. When we have least feeling and there is nothing left us, the word will support us. Do you believe that tonight? The psalmist is giving us reasons to run to the word of God first in our suffering. Look, and if that is true of the word of God in our suffering, then it's no wonder that the next two prayer requests that we find in this section are, notice, teach me and make me understand. Notice verse 26. I have told of my ways and you've answered me. Here's the request. Teach me your statutes. And it's as though here the psalmist remembers a time when God had answered his prayer and it motivates him to pray all the more boldly. To ask, Lord, you've done it before, do it again. Teach me now in my suffering, in my circumstances. Prove yourself faithful according to your word. The verb here I've told means to rehearse or to recount or to retell something. It means to mentally and verbally really play back the recording on a particular event, and that's precisely what the psalmist remembers doing at one point in time. You see, here the psalmist writes about it at, at how at one point in time, he had, as Psalm 62 verse 8 says, he, he had poured out his heart before God. Have you done that in a, in, in, in a, in a circumstance of suffering before? Or you just, you, you've laid it all out. The psalmist remembers how at one point he had turned the vessel of his soul upside down in prayer before God, confessing all his ways, all his deeds, and casting all his anxieties on the Lord. And, and how God, notice, heard him and answered him. So no wonder his request now is, teach me. Lord, teach me your statutes. God, you have taught me before Teach me again. Cause me to learn what you want me to know now in the midst of this trying circumstance, in the midst of this complicated suffering. It's not beyond you, Lord. The, the verb here to teach is an Old Testament term for discipleship, really. The statutes then are those timeless principles and decrees of God that are unchanging because as David Pallison says, they are engraved as standing truth, standing orders, a permanent constitution. Listen, hasn't that been your experience before, Christian? If you've, can you ever remember a time, I can, when God answered you with his timeless truth in your moment of greatest need? You opened up the scriptures and you read something that was written years and years ago. 
and it intersected your circumstance, and it jumped off the page. And you said, man, that, that is so true. Even today, it hasn't changed what comfort. Haven't you had a time when you poured out your heart before him and laid it all out there in prayer because you didn't know what to do or say anymore, and yet he, he answered you as you studied his word? And you may ask, how, how, can my, how can the Bible address my dilemma, my current difficulty and struggle? Just, you know, it seems so specific to me. Well, that it is timeless truth, statutes, unchanging principles. And the, the psalmist testifies here to us and to himself that there's no circumstance of suffering in which the believer cannot still learn something from God's unchanging word. Whatever you're going through, Christian, how, however unique you think it is, God knows and his word is sufficient. But notice verse 27, in case you think he's talking about simply acquiring more data or information, as if I just need to read more of the Bible, not necessarily. The psalmist clarifies with this second petition for God to, look, make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. You see, you can have the whole Bible memorized and still not understand. But the issue here is not content as much as it is conviction. And so Spurgeon summarizes this by saying, Look, give me deep insight into the practical meaning of thy word. And I think that's, I think that's right. The verb here to make me understand refers to kind of discernment that comes only by practice. Think of Hebrews twelve or five, Hebrews five verse fourteen, right? It's that it's that insight. It's that it, it's really it's like wisdom here in that it's knowledge acquired when applied to real life situations. That's what the that's what the psalmist is petitioning God for. Not just that I might know. And might under, but that I might also understand. The psalmist is praying this for himself about the, the path, notice, of God's detailed practical instructions that is the way of his precepts. Not just the theology, but the path. And why is this his prayer? He concludes that second line. Notice, so I will meditate on your wonders. Christian, this is where a right response and a reflex to God's word ultimately leads in your suffering. God intends for it to produce this in you. There's actually a bit of play on words here because the term for wonders here refers often to things in Scripture that are uh, actually too difficult and even too uh, wonderful 
to, uh, for, for mankind to even grasp or understand or comprehend, right? You think of like Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, those wonderful works of the Lord, even in knitting us together and in the womb, who can really understand that? They're too wonderful for our comprehension. And so, this is then a bit like Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 verse 19, right? Where he prays that they might know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, And that's essentially what the psalmist is praying here. Lord, give me understanding so that I might meditate on or even sing of those things which are beyond my understanding. Listen, this is the fruit that God can produce in you through your suffering. If you would but ask him, to teach you and to give you understanding in his word. This is James 1 verse 5, right? The context of which is also suffering. Verses 2 through 4. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. That's in the context of trials and suffering of the testing of our faith. The same truth is being taught here by the psalmist in verses 25 through 27. Christian, the word of God can give you the understanding that you need to walk wisely in your suffering. You, You can know what to do. You can know what to do. And so our prayer should be not just When you get in the midst of difficulty, look, our prayer shouldn't be just revive me, but it should also be revive me, Lord, according to your word, and teach me, and make me understand. Give me wisdom, God, so that I might honor you in any and every circumstance, no matter how difficult it is. Is this your prayer? When you, when you find yourself in great distress, do you, Christian, cry out to God for wisdom and understanding? Do you plead with him to teach you in the midst of your trial and suffering? He has so much to teach you. Or does your prayer often and only for escape and for relief? Listen, you're missing out on a lot if that's the case. Beloved, God can show you wonders even when your suffering and distress distress brings you to the brink of death he can show you wonders we might even say it's only then and there where you can truly understand his wonders so the word of god gives us understanding to walk wisely in our suffering. But notice second, there's another reason you should reflex to the Word of God when you suffer. The Word of God gives us strength or stability to walk faithfully in our suffering. And we need that, don't we? Especially, listen, when suffering's prolonged. 
and especially when sufferings compound. Notice how the psalmist says, puts it here, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me, Lord, according to your word. That remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. Now, in this second section, the psalmist describes his situation, notice, as one of not just great distress, but he adds to that great depression, great despair. Here we discover that his trials drove him not just to the brink of death, but also to the brink of despair. And the reason for this is due to the awareness, notice, that he has of his own sin in his experience of suffering. You see, those two sometimes, unfortunately, right, they just kind of go hand in hand and one follows the other. Here the psalmist sinks even further as his distress is compounded by the grief that he experiences over his own moral failures and weaknesses and struggles. Have you ever suffered in that way? Our plumber writes pointedly, trouble never comes alone. Sin presses us harder than anything else. Isn't that true? Christian, isn't that true? As crushing as outward trials can be, it is the inward ones that grieve us as Christians most, isn't it? So notice how he describes this situation now, verse 28. My soul weeps because of grief. The language here is of of, uh, dropping or falling, like the dripping and running of water. Um, And so it often refers to the weeping of tears as they roll off the cheek, fall to the ground. But it can also picture something that is melting away, almost like you know the, the dripping of a popsicle or an ice cream cone in the intense heat of summer, right? It's what all parents kind of stress out about when their kids get one of those, especially inside the house. The, the, the word is used this way in Psalm 22, verse 14, to describe suffering, where David writes there um, in a messianic psalm, actually, Familiar words, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart, listen, is like wax. It is melted within me. I tend to think that both uses are happening here. In other words, because of his grief and sorrow, notice here, the the psalmist's soul felt as though it was melting away like wax, that he felt as though he was spiritually being poured out onto the ground as water. I mean, if you've ever melted something to the ground like a candle, I mean, it is, it's like it's impossible to get that up, right? No doubt this was accompanied by many physical tears, but as Spurgeon puts it, the solid strength of his constitution was turning to liquid as if molten by the furnace heat of his afflictions. See, not only was the psalmist here clinging to the dust, but he was melting into the earth. That's the picture. I mean, what a picture of suffering, right? 
then what is his prayer now? If the prayer, notice, you think back, if the prayer in verse 25 offered by a distressed soul is for understanding and for wisdom, then what is the prayer offered by a despairing soul, by a depressed soul? Notice the second line of verse 28, strength, strengthen me, God, according to your word, or better yet, even cause me to stand, make me to rise, establish me according to your word. The verb is actually one that speaks of our posture. It's, it's, it's the psalmist saying, Lord, pick me up and stand me up. In other words, this is a prayer for moral stability and strength. That's, that's the answer to the psalmist's depression. So if you, if you ever find yourself despairing, even despairing of life because of your sin, this should be your prayer. Lord, strengthen. Lord, pick me up. God, raise me up. Stand me tall. Give me spiritual strength and rigidity so that I may be faithful, so that I don't buckle, so that I don't melt. And once again, notice how this stability is acquired. It's the exact same phrase in construction as verse 25, according to your word. Look, if your depression, listen, leads you, Christian, away from the grace of God found in his word and in his word alone, then you are stepping on your air hose, so to speak. Do you understand that? You're cutting off the only thing that can give you strength and stability. Not only can the word of God renew your mind, Christian, it could renew your moral resolve. It can pull you out of the depths from where your soul is melted because of grief. That's what the word can do. But how? How does the word do that? What does it look like for God to strengthen our moral resolve and establish us to walk faithfully when we suffer, when we grieve over our sin? Even notice first verse 29. This is a divine work first. It's a divine work of grace. Notice again, back to prayer. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Once again, the psalmist is in the mode of prayer and it's appropriate because he has no ability in his own to lift himself out of the mire of distress and despair. Like You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps if you're stuck in quicksand. Something outside has, has to help. And so his prayer to God here is twofold. Notice, on the one hand, it is for divine protection, the grace of divine protection that has removed the false way from me. On the other hand, it is for the grace of divine provision. And graciously, positively, graciously grant me your law. Two sides of the same coin. And we're always in need of both, aren't we? 
On the one hand, we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And on the other hand, we pray, we pray give us our daily bread. We need both divine protection and divine provision, and both are from the gracious hand of God. But notice here, the psalmist's request specifically for protection is literally caused the path of unfaithfulness to depart from me. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, in other words, Lord, don't even give me that option. Don't even allow that fork in the road. Don't, don't, don't even let me notice that fork in the road. Remove it from my sight, for my weakness is great in the midst of, especially in the midst of my despair and my distress. Now, th- this is really the prayer of Agar in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, isn't it? Keep deception and lies far from me. But give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Lord, there are all kinds of temptations I need you to guard me against. You see, like Agar, the psalmist knew this, the weakness of his own condition, that, that he was in utter dependence on God, not to give him more than he could handle, which, by the way, Christian, he has promised that. He has promised that. You have this great promise, remember, in God's word, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you'll be able to endure it. Christian, what you experience now is not more than you can handle. God is faithful to protect you, to shield you from what would utterly crush you into the ground and destroy your faith. And so this is what the psalmist prays. Negatively first, for the grace of God's divine protection, but positively, notice His request is not just negative, it's also for God's provision. And graciously grant me your law, or literally, grace me with your law. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? Grace me with your law. See, here we have grace and law in the same verse, really close to each other, and they're not fighting. (laughs) They are companions and not enemies. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Indeed, here we find out that the law is for the believer. Listen, for the Christian, the law is a gracious provision and part of what is necessary actually to pull oneself out of the mire of moral despair. Have you ever considered that? It's actually God's instructions. This very law that for the Christian, for the blessed man, Psalm 1 verse 2 It's this law that he delights in and meditates on day and night. Do you remember what verse 3 says is the result of his delighting in that, meditating in God's law? He will be what? Like a tree firmly planted, standing upright, strong, stable by streams of water, which 
yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. Look, that's the, that is the picture of spiritual and moral strength and stability. And so, beloved, when we, when we find ourselves downcast, listen, Christian, if you ever find yourself in a circumstance where you have, cannot overcome despair and depression, listen, even when it's over your own sin, the solution is not to run from God's law. No, we must and should run to it. When we find ourselves downcast and our eyes weep because of grief for not keeping God's commands, may we not run from Christ's instructions and His word, but to May we pray for God's grace of protection and provision that he would rid us of any sinful ways and give to us the grace of his law. Look, that's, how you, that's how you cure your condition. It is his work, but not only is it his work, it's also ours. Notice, the word of God gives us stability to walk faithfully in our trials. Yes, through divine work of grace, but also, notice verse 30, our diligent work of faith. The psalmist says, while at the same time, on the heels of praying for God's protection and provision, he says then, I've chosen the faithful way. I've placed your ordinances before me. You see, he, he doesn't say, God, you do it. I'm going to hang out. It's not what he does. He's very deliberate here. Here again, we have this biblical balance of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And yes, it is God's work of grace through his word to grant us strength and stability to make us stand upright in our suffering, even in light of our sin. However, we find out here also that it's also our work of faith to both prefer and to place the Word of God before us. The Bible admits here that though God must keep us, we still have a responsibility to keep ourselves. That's Jude 21 and 24. But notice how the Psalms puts it, I have chosen the faithful way. This is a direct contrast to the false way of verse 29 that God is to protect us and to keep us from. And that's very interesting, right? Literally, this is the way of faithfulness, whereas that was the way of faithlessness. And here, what the psalmist pictures is a sure and reliable path to walk. This is a firm path. This is solid ground. It is a trustworthy time-tested road, right? It's not like those paths that you imagine in those Indiana Jones movies, you know, they enter the temple or whatever it is, and there are all these stones, and you know, you know that he's going to step on one and it's going to break. This is not that. This is sure footing. See, here we find out that part of the means by which he keeps us from the false and unstable ways is working in us 
the desire, listen, to choose the faithful way. Isn't that so simple? He doesn't drag us kicking and screaming. He works in us to prefer, to prefer to stand on solid ground, to walk on a good path, the faithful way. We might put it this way, God keeps us from unfaithfulness by our choosing to remain faithful. God keeps us by our choosing. And notice this is a deliberate and personal choice here. Christian, you must resolve in your heart and mind this is the path that you prefer to walk on. You must prefer this or you'll never find yourself on it. For no one ever wandered aimlessly onto this faithful way. That doesn't just happen by accident. Spurgeon says men do not drop into the right way by chance. They must choose it and continue to choose it or they will soon wander from it. D.A. Carson has once said and written, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. That's so true. That has to be the resolve and the preference of your heart. Something that only God can give you. In fact, notice the second line here verse of the verse, I have placed your ordinances before me. Again, this is very deliberate action on the psalmist's part, but what kind of action, what exactly does this verb mean? It's a difficult one to understand, actually. I don't prefer, actually, the, the translation here placed in the New American Standard, um, because the word actually means, in the most basic sense, to flatten, uh, to level, to make equal. And here's the picture, as, for instance, a farmer might do to rough terrain in order to get it ready for planting and growing. That's Isaiah 28, verse 25. He does not level, uh, does, does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin? And other, that's, that's the word, level it. It's taking all the bumps and the alleys and just making them all the same, smooth. And so this is, this is the word, um, this is what someone might do to a path in order to make travel easier. You see, that is the work you must perform in your heart. Not just to prefer, but then to prepare and to plow. That's a much more picturesque way of putting it than just placed, right? In the sense the psalmist is saying, look, he has, he has bulldozed and plowed a path for God's ordinances. He has leveled every objection in his own heart to make way for God's judgments, his evaluation of things. That's what ordinances here means. Christian, this is what the psalmist does with the word of God in the midst of his trial. This is our work. 2 Corinthians 10.5, he tears down every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God in his own soul even, and takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
But did you do that when you suffer? Do you imagine God will just open your Bible for you and prepare your in, and, and do those things for you? psalmist here performs a diligent work of faith to prefer the truth and to prepare the way for the truth in his own heart. You must do that, Christian. That is the way out of despair. That's the way. You think, man, sometimes climbing out of depression is like scaling this treacherous cliff. And the psalmist says, it doesn't have to be that way. Plow the path with God's word. The word of God can give you strength and stability to walk faithfully, Christian, in your suffering. But you must pray for God's divine work of grace to protect and provide instruction. And you must purpose in your heart by faith to prefer and prepare the way for that word to do its work. And finally, very quickly, notice how the Word of God also gives us not just understanding that we might walk wisely, not just strength that we might walk faithfully, but also gives us confidence and hope to walk joyfully in our suffering. Verses 31 and 32, I cling to your testimonies. O Yahweh, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. You know, in this last section, the psalmist describes his situation of suffering as not only distressing and despairing, but also desperate. You notice it in the language. He's so desperate that he cries out, I cling to your testimonies. I'm hanging on for dear life. Lord, don't put me to shame. Notice the word here for cling. It's actually, it's actually the same word as verse 25 is to cleave. So here we've come full circle now. Beloved, when suffering clings to you, you ought to cling to God's word. However tightly your trial has a hold on you ought to be the same sort of grip that you have on the word of God. The psalmist, having made his decision back in verse 30, now sticks to it. But whenever a trial is prolonged, right, clinging seems to just get more difficult, doesn't it? You know, I can do a couple pull-ups now. I mean, <laughs> used to be do, used to be able to do a lot more. <laughs> but I guarantee it, if you told somebody I don't care how strong they are, to hang there for actually 30 minutes before you start pulling, I guarantee you they're not going to be able to do as many. And it's difficult clinging to God's word over time as a trial intensifies or suffering prolongs is hard. And so what is needed is confidence, hope, to persevere with joy in the midst of our trials. And so the psalmist notice, notice this final petition here. Oh, Yahweh, oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. 
The word for shame here means to disappoint or to humiliate or to disgrace or to confound. You see, think about how discouraging it can be to have no to little confidence that God would actually sustain you and even reward you for your faithfulness in the end. Would you be motivated to hold on? No. What, 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 how demoralizing is that? Uh, to, to think that I would come to the end of this trial and to the end of this life full of suffering only to be disappointed, only to be let down and to be disgraced and to be put to shame, further humiliated, further disgraced, not only in this life but also in the one to come. But the psalmist is convinced, which is why he prays here, that won't happen. And Spurgeon writes, a brave heart is more wounded by shame than by any weapon which a soldier's hand can wield. And so the psalmist's prayer is this, his confidence and his hope is that God would not put him to shame. He is sure of future glory. He knows that momentary light affliction will be exchanged one day for an eternal weight of glory. Now, this was Paul's testimony, right? In Philippians 1 verse 20, it was according to his earnest expectation and hope that he would not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness. There's the courage. There's the confidence. Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It's how he could say in the midst of suffering, it's how he can write from prison to me to live as Christ and to die even better. Can you say that, Christian? Do you have that confidence? You need this confidence to suffer well, to suffer to the end, to suffer with joy. But notice what this confidence in God's promise for vindication does to the psalmist then now in verse 32. Finally, I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my And I love the language here. The change from walking to running intensifies the expression of living out God's word. This obedience is now fervent. It's energetic. It's swift. It's decisive. It's full of vigor. It is zealous and cheerful. It's not that half-hearted, half-committed half walk run, right? That awkward, you know, students sometimes do when they're late for class. They don't want to be ashamed in front of their peers, but they also don't want to be late. So they just kind of had this awkward, and it's like, just commit to it. You're going to be late, so walk. Or you're going to get there, just sprint. (laughs) This is sprinting. This is spiritual sprinting. Spurgeon says, what a change, isn't it? Listen, from verse 25 
to the present from cleaving in the dust to running in the way. Guys, you can have this. You, You can have this in suffering. When your soul has cleaved to the dust, this is still possible. The Word of God can give you this confidence. And why this renewed energy and joy? Notice finally, for you will enlarge or have enlarged my heart. Spurgeon says again, the feet soon run when the heart is energetic, right? You can't run. I mean, we know this even physically speaking, unless you have a a healthy heart. As one writer put it, running is a strong and healthy action of the body. It requires energy. It is an exercise that needs a sound heart. The same is true in spiritual circumstances. The same is true in your suffering. Look at the reason the psalmist gives here for the intensity and the fervency and the joy of his devotion in the midst of his difficulties that God, that God will enlarge, will grow, will broaden, will expand his heart. Such a fascinating phrase, right? What, what, is it, what does it refer to? Well, it can refer to a number of different options. It can refer to an increase in wisdom, you know, if the heart is the seat of sort of your mind and your thinking and your reasoning, that's how it's used in First Kings 4.29, if you're taking notes, where it says of Solomon there, God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment, and here's the phrase, and breadth of heart or mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's mind was expanded by the word of God and the wisdom of God. That could be what is mentioned here. But it can also mean deliverance and freedom from distress, right? Uh, Psalm 118 verse 5, from my distress I called upon the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad or a large or expanded place. It's that word. It's the same word in Psalm 4 verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. That word for relieved is just, it's that idea of making broad. It's that, man, there's been pressure. Have you felt that? Like even in suffering, man, I feel like I'm, I'm suffocating. I feel like I'm short of breath. And the Lord just removes the weight. And I can breathe. You ever been so troubled in life about something that you felt like there's just this elephant sitting upon your chest? Well, if it's used in this way, this would be the psalmist saying, Look, Lord, you you have liberated my heart. You've given me much room finally to breathe. But it could also mean simply greater joy. It's how it's used in Isaiah 60, verse 5, where the prophet writes there, Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will be wide and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. Again, I think it could even include all of the above, right? Matthew Henry writes, The joy of the Lord should be wheels to our obedience. 
Another writer, when the heart is set free from the cramping constraint of trouble and anxiety, the psalmist will use his liberty for more energetic service. But I like this the most. Charles Bridges writes, the secret of Christian energy and success is a heart enlarged in the love of God. Godly sorrow had made me serious. Now let holy joy make me active. Christian, you can have that joy in suffering, and it can make you run. A large heart is what is needed for fervent, joyful obedience to God's word, and this too is a work of God's word. You have confidence in God's word and promises. He'll never put you to shame if you remain faithful to him that it will enlarge in your heart so that you might run. The word of God is such a gift, isn't it? And in the face of distress and depression and desperation, look, here, here are three reasons you should just, you, your reflex should next time you face any kind of suffering trial, just, man, I'm going to make a beeline to the scriptures. Because the word of God gives you understanding to walk wisely in that suffering. You'll know what to do. The word of God gives you strength. It'll, it'll, it'll stand you upright to walk faithfully in that suffering. And it'll give you confidence and hope to walk joyfully in the midst of that suffering. To summarize, we could, we could even put it this way. In our suffering, the word of God it has, has the power to enlighten your eyes, to establish your feet, and to open your heart so that you can run on the path of obedience with endurance, even when it's hard, even when it's hard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great encouragement. Lord, may we never look within When we face difficulties, may we look out and up to you and would you provide for us in the grace and the glory of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.